For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purity for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous of good works. Declare these things, extort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Thank you, Stephen. Well, you'll remember that last week, in the passage leading up to this one, the Apostle Paul had said to Titus, But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach people to live in a way that accords with the truth about God, about sin, about what's virtuous, what's Christ-like. Older men are to be sober-minded. Likewise, older women are to be reverent, models of kindness and self-control. Younger women, younger women and men, too, are to be sober-minded, self-controlled, pure, etc. And now, following these moral exhortations from Paul on how to live in accordance with the truth, Paul is now telling us why or on what basis or with what power Christians are to live such an upright life. In short, he says, people of God, you must live righteous and upright lives. Why? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You might have thought that the grace of God and your moral or wise living had nothing between them, that there was no strong relationship between them, that you could be a good person quite apart from the grace of God, that if a person just tries hard enough, he or she can be good enough. Not true the gospel says. And if you're listening in today, struggling with sin, you can't seem to beat that old habit. You can't seem to be able to shake those self-loathing thoughts that you're not pretty enough or good enough or successful enough, happy or kind enough. If you can't seem to figure out things in your relationships, you have a hard time admitting that you're wrong, saying you're sorry. Whatever it is that you, where you are, are struggling with this morning, the good news for you is the grace of God, Paul says, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, again, you might say, that's good news, but what on earth does God's grace, his salvation, have to do with my struggle to be good, with my moral living? And the answer is everything. Everything. Again, maybe you're here and you thought that the Christian message is a message that if you simply believe in Jesus, you'll get to one day go to heaven. Your sins will be forgiven, but that this has little to do with how you live now. Maybe you've come to believe that God saves people not so that they can become good people and do good works, but simply to save them, to save us from our sins. And if that's you, Paul has in this passage a strong word of correction. You might even call it a word of rebuke. And it's this, that God didn't save you just to save you, but his grace has infiltrated our world through Jesus in order that you would become zealous to do good works, in order that a people 
would be purified. He didn't save you just to save you, but he saved you to make you good and to make you pure and to set you out as a person zealous to do good works. See, God isn't just concerned with your eternal salvation, though of course he's concerned with that. He wants to make you holy. He is determined to make you good, to make you righteous, upright, pure. He is determined, as we'll see, to purify a people for his own possession. We'll see that it's the grace of God that affects change in our lives. It trains us, is how Paul puts it. And, and here's, here's his words. Again, in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, paideia, it's this Greek uh, notion, word for educating, a kind of holistic training. You might think of it as an apprenticeship. He's training us to renounce ungodliness. This grace of God, which has appeared, is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, of course, this grace of God, which has appeared, is a reference to none other than you guessed it, Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul makes that clear in this passage, and he will make it clear further in the next passage. The point, then, is that somehow what God has done through Jesus trains us. The us referring, of course, to Jesus' own followers. That somehow what God has done in and through Jesus is in itself a training, an education of sorts. A formative event by which God forms his people, that Jesus in his life, death and resurrection, in the example he lived before us and in the gift of his own life to us, is forming us in this act, in this event, in this appearing. He's forming us to be a new kind of people. A people who, Paul says, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. There are ways of being in this world, of course, that are, well, worldly, contrary to the gospel. And the form of Jesus' life given for us teaches us, trains us to renounce these things, bitterness, envy, uncontrolled lives, selfishness. We renounce these things, and Jesus' life given for us trains us to renounce our sin. What is it for you? What is it that God will be calling you even now? to renounce today, to continue in this training of Jesus, which is revealed in the grace of God given for us. And the grace of God given for us likewise trains us, teaches us, forms us to live godly lives. It's not just about renouncing things, but it's about taking up other things, living self-controlled and upright lives, Paul says. And the question that I want to spend time on is how? How is it that this grace of God is somehow connected to our training in moral and upright living and becoming pure? How? Well, I thought one place we could begin to engage this question is, what changed Jean Valjean? Some of you are familiar with the story of Les Mis, which was uh, turned into a, a musical, a Victor Hugo novel. You remember the story, if you've heard it. Uh, this hardened criminal, Jean Valjean, after stealing from a priest who had helped him in the first place. He runs off with the priest's silverware. He's then caught by the police and dragged back before the priest. And the priest 
instead of testifying against him, looks at Jean Valjean and says, Ah, here you are, he exclaimed, looking at Jean Valjean. I am glad to see you. Well, but how is this? I gave you the candlesticks too, which are of silver like the rest. Why did you not take them away with your forks and spoons? And Jean Valjean, astonished, he opened his eyes wide and stared at the venerable bishop with an expression which no human tongue can render any account of. Jean Valjean was changed in this moment by this radical act of grace, this priest who had been stolen from and says, hey, you forgot the most important pieces, these grand silver candlesticks. And Jean Valjean has changed. Not all at once, of course, but over time, not without fault, but changed nonetheless. Grace, forgiveness, mercy. And of course, it's not just one-off acts of radical grace that change lives, but ongoing, continuous acts of grace. I saw this clearly when I was youth pastoring, working with youth for, for many years. The kid who grew up in the foster care system, passed from family to family as a kid. He was a very different kind of person, a very different kid who'd grown up in a stable and loving family. Grace, love, kindness, forgiveness, these form us into what we are. And the gospel says that for all who are lost, all who have become corrupt, all those who struggle with having critical thoughts, who struggle with selfishness and sin of all kinds, in Jesus Christ you are forgiven, loved, accepted. Come to him and be transformed to know that You don't need to earn God's love and favor. That you don't need to earn God's forgiveness. That this is good news. It's news that's transformed and is transforming me. And transforming all who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. New. He's made new. For the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and to live godly lives in the present age. Now, there are, of course, other aspects of this transformation. The ways that the grace of God, his salvation, changes people are beyond what we can recount today. It would include the example of Jesus set before us, an example of humility and self-giving, that though he's the king over all, he becomes a servant and even washes our feet. his, His example changes us. It would include, as this passage emphasizes, living in light of the hope of the gospel, as Paul says. The grace of God trains us, in verse 13, to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our future shapes our present. If you believe that all there is ahead of us is death, no, no great future, then, as Paul says, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Live in the moment. You only live once. Do what you want. But if you believe that there is a good and holy God under whom we live, And there's a judgment day coming. 
and that on that day you will be received by God, forgiven, welcomed home, given grace through Jesus. Well, that shapes the present. That kind of future, if you believe it, will shape you. It will train you in a particular direction. And of course, ultimately, the way that this change happens in us, the people of God, is less a matter of our own doing or our own great commitment to God and more a matter of God's own promise, his commitment to us. As our passage concludes in verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Have you ever wondered what all this is about? What it's all for, the world and all of its beauty and all of its suffering and chaos. Have you ever wondered why God has allowed the world to endure generation after generation with sufferings of all kinds, war and famine and injustices of every kind? What's God up to in the world in all of this human story? Why doesn't he just end it all if he's not going to end the injustices? Well, Paul indicates why here. It's an idea that's repeated time and again throughout the biblical story. We hear of it in Exodus. Now, therefore, says the Lord, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. In Deuteronomy, he says, the Lord our God has chosen you out of all the nations of the earth to be a people of his own possession. Again in Deuteronomy, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Or in Psalm 135, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. Or Ezekiel 36, for the Lord has, uh, in Ezekiel 36, you shall be my people and I shall be your God. Or in Malachi one of the later prophets. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. You see, throughout the scriptures, we find that the Lord God of Israel, the maker of the heavens and earth and all things visible and invisible, is a God who is committed to forming and forging a people for himself, even through suffering, to forming for himself a people who are pure, and holy, who are like him, and who can then live with him for all of eternity. And this is not something he's waiting to do at a later time. He's doing it now, even through the course of human history, starting now, even with you and with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, God doesn't save us just to save us, but he saves us to transform us, to be the kinds of people who infuse and permeate the world with grace, and our world needs it. We're to be a people zealous for good works. So go and do good to your neighbor. Go and do good works. Let us be a people 
who do good works. As Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And for one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Love your enemies and do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You see, the people of God are a free people to do good works. We've been given much. God has given himself in the person of Jesus to set us free from sin and bondage that we might be like him, transformed into his likeness. God has been gracious with you in Christ. And Christ calls us in response to lend and to give freely and to be a people zealous for good works. And he's training you. He's calling you, even today, to extend his grace into the world. And more than that, Again, God doesn't save us just to save us, or even just to be good for the sake of being good, but to have eternal fellowship with you and with me. He's forming and forging a people for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Let's pray.